Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this Wednesday night lecture in the second week of Rare Book School. Tonight is a momentous occasion on several scores, as you will see as our early evening unfolds. Among other things, for those of you who have been keeping track, and one thing we know about Terry Bellinger, he loved to keep track of everything. And so he started counting the Rare Book School and the Book Arts Press lectures. And I had the great distinction, the enormous privilege of giving lecture 499. <laughs> Very special. Jim Green, the librarian of the Library Company in Philadelphia, one of the great American bookmen, gave lecture 500. And Green is typical of some of the extremely distinguished people who have come to Rare Book School, both at Columbia and here in Charlottesville, to lecture. Anne Blair, Leona Rostenberg, Graham Pollard, David McKittrick, Paul Needham, Tom Tansel, Don McKenzie, Michael Winship, Madeline Stern, David Vandermeulen, Roger Stoddard, John Bidwell, Jerome McGann, Christopher DeHamel, Robert Darnton, Bill Scheide, Bernard Breslauer, Bill Todd, Leah Price, Greer Allen, Miriam Foote, Barbara Shaler, the list goes on. In fact, let me read all 600 to you now. <laughs> Whom could we get to give number 600? Well, you know the answer, but you don't know the process we went through. We thought we might ask Sir W.W. Gregg, but he was unavailable. R.B. McCarrow, also unavailable. And so we hit on tonight's lecture instead, Bill Reese. William S. Reese is undoubtedly, unquestionably, unassailably the dean of booksellers specializing in Americana. He has issued some 335 catalogs in the course of a career in rare books spanning five decades. He started as a three-year-old, it seems. <laughs> More about that when he speaks to us. I hate these child prodigies. He's worked with many of the leading collectors and institutions in the field. In selecting him to deliver the 600th lecture here, of course, we're choosing in many ways one of our own. For Bill taught at RBS both at Columbia and here from 1986 to 1993. But his impact goes even beyond Charlottesville. He served on the boards of several research libraries is currently an officer of the American Antiquarian Society, is vice chair of the Yale Library Development Committee, and the list of service goes on and on. He's curated numerous exhibitions of rare books, has written several reference works in Americana, and he's lectured widely. His 1993 Fortzheimer lecture delivered at the New York Public Library provided a colorful history of booksellers of Americana. His prescient analysis, The Rare Book Market Today, which I enjoin all of you to read, it's online, from 1999, 
began with papers that were read at Brown and Yale, and then became a segment for C-SPAN. A number of his ideas about the rare book market and its operation are amplified in Bill's 2001 lecture on the relationship between collectors and libraries delivered at the Library of Congress and subsequently published by them. Bill has also had a significant impact in the world of bibliography and book history through his philanthropy. He established the Reese Fellowship in Print Culture of the Americas in 1998, and since then more than 150 such fellowships have been funded, supporting research in 18 different institutions, the American Antiquarian Society, the Bancroft, the John Carter Brown, and so on, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Huntington, the library company, his local, the Beinecke, and of course, at Rare Book School. These fellowships seek to encourage research in the history of the book and bibliography and all other aspects of print culture in the Americas, including the publishing and marketing of books from the 16th century to the present. Clearly, he is primus inter pares, the first among equals, enriching by his labors the fields of bookselling, bibliography, collecting, and more. Please join me in welcoming our highly distinguished 600th lecture, William S. Reese. That, that all sounds really good. <laughs> I wish it was. I, I wonder, I, I've given two previous lectures at the Rare Book School. I wonder what numbers they were. I but, can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> he's actually given three. <laughs> Number 318 on 11 July 1991. Some American booksellers, Peter Decker, the Everstocks, and Wright House. Lecture 334 on the 5th of July, 1993, collecting Herman Melville. And Lecture 443 on 24 July, 2000, Paul Mellon as a collector of Americana and Virginiana, which was the 2000 Saul Malkin lecture. <laughs> For, for, those, for those of you who are present at those lectures, I don't plan to repeat any of them. <laughs> this, this, this is a trip down memory lane um, and is, is designed as such because it's about uh, my beginnings in the rare book business. Um, and as I, I had agreed with Michael to give this talk, and about that time I was at Swan Galleries in New York. And I realized I had a little time between viewing the material that was on uh, display there and getting the train back to New Haven. And I finished early, so I decided to drop by the old print shop on Lexington Avenue on my way back to Grand Central Station. And when I arrived at the front door, I realized it was almost 50 years to the day since I had first walked in it. Now, those of you who are familiar with the old print shop will know that it preserves its flavor better than any other antiquarian establishment related to printed objects in America. Since the Newman family had the foresight to buy their building many years ago, it survived virtually unchanged in the same location ever since, which is, of course, the only way that rare book 
stores survive in large urban areas these days. This was fortunate since I knew exactly what cabinet I could lean on to recover from the realization I'd been fascinated with pieces of old paper for half a century. Later on, it led to further reflections on how radically the world of rare books and related objects has changed, while still maintaining some of its characteristics that have always guided it. For me, the world of printed things began with a love of birds. I grew up on a farm in northern Maryland, raised chickens, and watched all manner of bird life soar over me. In our dining room, an Audubon print, Greenshank, plate 308 for those of you who want to look it up, which shows that wading bird posed rather stiffly in front of the old Spanish fort in St. Augustine, thus neatly juxtaposing American history and an historic American place with ornithology. It was the original object of my fascination, and if I die with the word green shank on my lips, I hope no one will toss the print, which I still have, on a bonfire. The print had belonged to my father since the 1930s. In 1936, he told me, he bought 33 Audubon prints for $330. The only problem, he said, was he didn't have $330. And he sold 32 of the prints to James Carrington, of the tobacco dynasty for his estate on Sea Island, Georgia, <clears throat> where I'm sure they have long since perished in the pre-air conditioning air of coastal Georgia. But he kept the green chain. I wanted to see more, and so one of my family's semi-annual shopping expeditions to New York, my father took me to the old print shop. And what a revelation that was for me. Here were bins and bins of prints, Audubon birds, quadrupeds, flower prints, history prints, everything one could imagine. Inspired, I saved up my allowance, and the next year made my first antiquarian purchase, Audubon's Gray Wolf from the Folio Quadrupeds, which cost a staggering $10. I was now officially a collector. I now seemed to see Audubon everywhere I went. The old cafeteria of the National Gallery in Washington served hearty southern food, which I later learned when I went to work as Paul Mellon's book consultant was Mr. Mellon's favorite cuisine. And since he was the director, or, or not the director, but rather the chairman of the board of the National Gallery, that's what they served in the cafeteria. <laughs> More to my taste, it was decorated entirely with Audubon prints. But the high point of my Audubon education <clears throat> was another giant step, came in 1968. My parents <clears throat> excuse me, had by this time learned that hauling me around department stores for Christmas shopping was painful for all. And so, when we went to Philadelphia, they went to Wanamaker's and dropped me off at Sessler's, which was then the premier antiquarian bookstore in the city. All of the Sessler family were long gone, but the store was run by the extraordinary Mabel Zahn, a diminutive ball of energy and book knowledge who began work there in 1914. The list of book people who bought their first rare book from Miss Zahn is very long, and the current book trade includes Bailey Bishop, once of Goodspeeds, um, in Boston, Clarence Wolfe or George McManus, Graham Rader, and myself, unusual collection of people. <laughs> Miss Zahn promised my parents to keep me out of trouble, and once they left, she asked me what I was interested in. And I said, Audubon. She simply said, come with me, and led me to the second floor room. And there on a large table sat a complete double elephant folio set of Audubon. It had just been sold, but Miss Zahn invited me to look to my heart's content and left me to my own devices. Perhaps she figured because it was already sold, anything a 13-year-old could do to it wouldn't be a problem. But 
But I kept me happily occupied and out of her way for the next two hours. And by the time my parents retrieved me, I felt that I'd entered the big time. This was the Flammer set, sold by Sesslers for $53,000 at the time, and 20 years later bought by Graham Rader for $900,000. Graham promptly broke it up. My book interests were developing beyond Audubon. Rural America in the 1960s was a good place to get a lot of reading done. And from the perspective of the printed word, life was perhaps closer to the 19th than the 21st century. The black and white TV got three scratchy black and white channels. Our phone number still had six digits, and zip codes were a new thing. I plowed my way through American history nonstop. As I did, I read the footnotes, and then went to the library hoping to find the books cited in the footnotes. And I soon discovered that not all books were readily findable. Indeed, some seemed to be very rare and hard to come by. I was particularly interested in the history of the American West. One of my uncles owned a cattle ranch in Arizona, and I grew up on a cattle farm. So the history of ranching and the cattle business in the West had a natural appeal to me. I started collecting books in the classic days of the open range. Around this time, I got a driver's license, which greatly expanded my ability to go around to bookstores. And I was, since I was going to school in Baltimore, I soon discovered that one of the great experts in books about ranching was a man named Jeff Dykes, who lived in College Park, Maryland. Jeff was a transplanted Texan who had begun working in land and soil conservation in the 1920s, and then began by founding the Soil Conservation Service, a key element in the rural programs of the New Deal. Eventually, he was the director of its field operations, which meant that he traveled all over the country, and as an avid book collector, it meant that he got to go to antiquarian bookstores everywhere. When Jeff retired from his government job, he sold his original collection to Texas A&M, and moved into a second career as bookseller, which he had been doing for six or seven years when I got to know him. But his knowledge of the American book trade was both broad and deep, extending back to his own beginnings as a collector in the 1930s, and his experience in going to bookstores all over the country. Jeff was my first great mentor, and I owe him great debt. He told me who I should go to, who I should write to get catalogs, stores I should visit when I got the chance, reference books I needed, and endless anecdotes about booksellers, both living and dead. Through him, I connected for the first time with a deeper history of the book trade and American book collecting. I was going to get a car for my high school graduation present, and I hit the book, hit the road with Jeff's book list in hand. But first, there was the question of where to go to college. The shortlist was developed on the basis of rare book collections. <laughs> The obvious standout was Yale, which had the Beinecke Library and one of the premier collections of Western Americana in the country. So Yale it was, which proved to be a very happy choice for me, and I would like to think now of my long history of association with that institution for them as well. I arrived in New Haven in 1973 and never left. Before Yale, though, I set out to visit many bookstores as I could around the country. My first and most important stop was Texas. First, I met Dick Bossy of the Aldridge Bookstore in Dallas, a charming eccentric who had just issued a catalog devoted to Western cattle, cattle and outlaw books entitled Shitty Shitty Bang Bang. <laughs> From there, it was on to Austin, or rather, what, and, or rather what seemed far south of the town of Austin, to the vast prefabricated structure by the side of Interstate 35, which housed the Jenkins Company. John Jenkins, who I later came to know well, was then in the ascendant part of his career. 
His book empire under one roof houses rare book operation, a publishing house, the vast quantities of government documents he purchased at the dissolution of the fabled Water Washington antiquarian bookstore Loudermilks a few years before, and a covered wagon that, despite his claims, probably did not go across the plains. <laughs> In College Station, Texas, I met Fred White Jr., another Western specialist who has become my partner a few years later. I covered a lot of the West and Midwest that summer, but the Texans were the ones who seemed to have the big vision, and I made friendships that have endured to this day. Arriving in New Haven, I lost no time in heading for the Beinecke Library. As some of you no doubt know, Yale owns one of the most complete copies of the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the West, obtained for the university by the intrepid Wesley Needham a decade earlier. Shipped from Asia, wrapped in uncured yak skins, it was impounded by quarantine authorities and only saved from being incinerated by a barrage of big-time Yale legal talent. As I came down the stairs to the reading room level of the Beinecke part, part of the text was being delivered to a waiting monk who prostrated himself in flowing saffron robes on the carpet in front of the reader's desk. Once more, I thought to myself, wow, this is the big time. <laughs> I came to know that desk well myself, although the closer I got to horizontal, closest I got to horizontal was leaning on it. And I'm proud that I appear in the Beinecke's 10th anniversary publication issued that fall, standing at the desk, awaiting a book. Now, the first thing I did when I got to Yale was go to Beinecke, and after the monk, introduce myself to a man named Archibald Hanna. And Archie Hanna is one of the, most, one of the greatest bookmen I've ever known, I think one of the greatest bookmen this country's ever, ever seen. We called Archie the Reverend Dr. Colonel, uh, because he was an Episcopalian deacon, um, he had, was a colonel in the Marine Corps Reserve, um, having served as a codebreaker during World War II um, in, in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and he had a doctorate from Yale, although he never taught history. He, uh, he went to work almost immediately in the library and was the curator of Western Americana. And I owe Archie an immeasurable debt because um, it was through Archie that I met many of the people that I came to know well in the antiquarian book world. Um, Archie, it seemed, knew everybody. He'd been everywhere. Every, every other summer, he would go on a driving tour around the country, visiting booksellers, spending money, um, which, of course, is all a quick way to a bookseller's heart, um, and buying books at the Yale Library. And he brought vast quantities of material into Beinecke and into Yale, but he also represented the kind of outreach that the Yale Library in those days really specialized in, of trying to connect to the book trade all over the country um, and make the book trade want to bring books to New Haven. So Archie what became uh, my mentor. Um, he was my advisor when I was a Yale undergraduate. Um, we did many things together, and ultimately I worked for him for a while. But it was really through Archie that I first made contact with a lot of people that I came to know well in the book world. The other person who really was my mentor at Yale was a man named Charles Montgomery, who is probably less well known to this group, but is a, was an extraordinary character. Uh, Charlie Montgomery had been a dealer in antique pewter and antiques, but then was hired by Henry Francis DuPont to help him develop the winter tour museum library, and ultimately became director of Winter Tour. And I don't know how many of you have been to Winter Tour, but those of you who have, 
know that it consists of a series of historical rooms that have been removed from buildings all over mostly the East Coast and reinstalled inside the vast rambling structure that was Henry Francis DuPont's mansion. And uh, Charlie had overseen most of that um, and ultimately was director of Winter Tour until he worked himself into an early heart attack trying to keep up with what DuPont wanted. Um, he retired from that and then came to teach at Yale. And he too was somebody who knew everybody, uh, had been everywhere, and was absolutely fearless in taking his classes out to see things. And I'll give you one anecdote of Charlie Montgomery in the field that will give you a flavor for this. Um, he took a group of us to the Frick Museum. And I forget who was, this is before Charles Reiskamp was director of the Frick, I forget who was director at the time. But whoever it was very kindly let us in and we went around and looked at things. And there was this amazing Boole table that even in those days was probably worth a couple million dollars. And Charlie was very interested in how furniture was put together and was very insistent that everybody understand the secondary woods involved and things like that. So we're standing in the Frick's drawing room or whatever it is, and there's this Boole table. And Charlie turns to me and one of the other students and says, Bill, Joe, turn that table over. <laughs> so we immediately went over, and before the director could say anything, he picked the table up and turned it over. And I, I looked up and saw the director of the Frick just standing there with his jaw hung open. <laughs> but it was too late to do anything about it, and, and, so, and so we got away with it. And then that's, that's the way Charlie was. You, you, you simply went in, you wanted to see something, and you, you picked it up and you looked at it. Um, so that was a great lesson, too, that, that Gaul could get you a long way. <laughs> um, my third bibliographical mentor at Yale was really exactly the opposite of, of the traits uh, of either Archie Haney's amiability and friendliness um, or Charlie's brashness, and that was Donald Gallup, um, who was the curator of American literature at the time. And some of you in this room probably knew Donald. Um, but Donald uh, was a very reserved man um, who kept his cards very close to his chest. Um, he, I don't think, was still involved in the CIA by the point I knew him, but he had certainly been in the OSS during the war and may well have been one of uh, the CIA recruiters on the Yale campus, along with Norman Holmes Pearson, uh, who founded the Yale American Studies program um, and who was a well-known CIA recruiter. Um, but he certainly was involved in a lot of hocus-pocus during the war. Um, and uh, Donald was very careful, very precise man. And I took his, the last time he taught his course in bibliography, I was privileged to be one of his five students. There were two graduate students, myself, and two Beinecke staff members. And we would meet in Donald's office once a week and sit around, and he would expound to us. And, it was particularly interesting because at this point Yale had just acquired the pound papers and Donald was sorting them and a lot of the papers that he was working on were things that Pound had written while he was in prison in Pisa and Pound had a shortage of paper so he had written out some of the cantos, some of the Pisan cantos, run out of paper and then he started on the other side so individual sheets of paper had different things running in different directions and different sides of them. And in this pre-computer and pre-scanning age, sorting them out and cataloging them had to be an almost 
sheet by sheet process. He solved this sorting problem by running clotheslines across his office and attaching pieces of the peas and cantos with clothespins to the clotheslines. So we, we sat in chairs under the, under the peas and cantos hanging above us. And uh, Jane Greenfield, who, again, some of you may have known, who was a great expert on, a uh, great binding expert, was a diminutive bird-like lady who probably weighed sev all of 70 pounds. And the other treasures that sat in Donald's office were these two wonderful chairs that had belonged to Gertrude Stein and had been in Stein's apartment in Paris. And you can see them today in the lobby of the Beinecke Library. But one of them has a, a pattern was painted on the uh, cover for her by Matisse and the other by Picasso. And then Alice Toklas needlepointed those designs into these two little chairs. And they sat on two little uh, stands and so we would always get, the, we would get there, but we would wait for Miss Greenfield, who was always a little late. And Miss Greenfield would come in, and we would all stand up, and Donald would stand up, and he would help Mrs. Greenfield up onto the little dais that the chair sat on. And Mrs. Greenfield would perch on one either the Picasso or the, or the Matisse chair for the duration of the lecture. And Donald... Um, I'll tell you a couple of Donald anecdotes. Um, he would give us every week a class assignment that we had to do in 24 hours of research problems. And we had to go off and solve the research problems. And one of them was that we had to go to the, binding, to the, the Sterling stacks, uh, the main library stacks, and get a 16th century book and collate it. Well, we all knew that the cutoff for things being in Beinecke was 1600. There were no 16th century books in the Sterling Stacks. So we all walked outside, and we all looked at the assignment, and we looked at each other, and we said, should we go back in and say to him there are no 16th century books in the Stacks? No. <laughs> let's go see if we can find some. <laughs> well, sure enough, without much difficulty, I said, let's go to religion. Sure enough, Yale had books with 1567, 1585 imprints sitting in the open stacks, waiting to be checked out. This is something I did something about later. <laughs> um, but um, we, we all got, all got books, and, and when we got to the next class, Donald apologized profusely for having given us an impossible assignment, so we all felt very smug when we pulled <laughs> the books out. The other is... Um, I bought a copy of uh, Donald's uh, T.S. Eliot bibliography that he had inscribed to John Carter, the head of great bookseller and co-author of Printing the Mind of Man, uh, the head of the European branch of Scribner's Rare Book Department. And uh, a warm inscription to, to Carter. It was sold with Carter's books after John Carter died. And so I was very proud to have acquired it, and I took it to Donald, who I, at that point I'd known for some time. This was well after I was an undergraduate and asked him if he would inscribe it to me. And he said, well, I'm, I can't really do that, can I? I'm not giving it to you. I mean, I, even if I had one, I wouldn't give it to you. <laughs> but here's what I'll do. And he took it, and he turned the book upside down and backwards and wrote me a note about how pleased he was that I had managed to acquire the book <laughs> and, and signed it. And my, my fourth mentor was Fritz Lieber, 
um, who had just retired as the director of, of Beinecke when I arrived, but had an office uh, near there and was very much a presence. Um, and uh, one could go around and see Fritz in his office on York Street, just north of the Sterling Library, where if you could get under the fog of cigarette smoke that hung about three feet above the floor, I would I'd kind of crouch over not being a smoker and, and talk to him. Um, but Fritz likewise introduced me to many people in the book world. The person whose introduction married, mattered the most, though, was Archie's introduction to a man named Peter Decker. And Peter Decker was one of the great booksellers in Americana. Um, Peter had been a journalist um, and then a book publisher. He worked for the firm of William Abbott, um, who was a publisher of American historical texts in the 1920s, and dabbled in dealing in rare books. And when Abbott died, um, he had no heirs, and he left Peter his business. And so Peter entered the book business in 1928 and handled a number of major collections, uh, became really one of the major dealers in the field, became um, F.W. Beinecke's, Fritz Beinecke's agent, who was the member of the Beinecke family who collected Americana, the brothers who built the library, um, and then retired in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. So it was... By the time I knew Peter, was Peter was 80 and had retired. Uh, but he still had an office in New York because he was very good friends with uh, Jack Bartfield, of J.N. Bartfield Rare Books, who had a place on 57th Street. And Jack let Peter maintain an office in his storage room on the fifth floor. And I had actually tried to meet Peter before I got introduced to him by Archie uh, by showing up on his doorstep and introducing myself. And he said, and I quote, Scat. <laughs> Peter didn't have any books left to sell. I think he spent his time reading these sets of books that Jack had stored in the storage room. So he was somewhere in the middle of Orley Farm. He was reading his way through Trollope or something. He didn't want to be bothered by me. However, when Archie took me, uh, it was a different matter. He and Archie were great friends. They would go on trips together all the time. They'd, they'd, they'd travel in Europe together every summer. Um, and so once I was introduced properly, Peter was extremely nice to me. And Peter helped me out a great deal. Um, and I'll mention a fifth person because he's key to this story, and that's Michael Coe, who is the only one of these people who's still alive, uh, who's a professor of archaeology at Yale. And at this point, as interested as I was in books, I was still very interested in, in American historical archaeology. And I was a student of Mike's. And so I studied a lot of Mesoamerican things with him, and that becomes key to the next part of the story. So I was running around looking at books all the time, and I was going to New York all the time, and um, I had discovered a thing called the Newtown Bee, the Arts and Antiques Weekly, which still exists. And uh, many of you probably read it. It's, you know, it's where you find out where, what's coming up at auction, where sales are on, what shows are on, et cetera, et cetera. And by this point, I was a sophomore at Yale, and I saw in the Newtown Bee an ad for the sale of a guy named Otto Fisher, who was a book collector from Detroit. And I'd heard of Dr. Fisher. He was, he was many people in the book world mentioned him. He, he had, was an absolutely omnivorous collector who supposedly, I was told by people, had bought at least 100,000 books. He had a huge house in, in Detroit that was crammed full of books. And 
This auction, which was taking place at Tepper Galleries, which was down near where Swan Galleries is now, but no longer exists. And it was Dr. Fisher's furniture. So there supposedly weren't any books there. But in the, it said it rugs, maps. Not maps. Here's the guy who had all these books and stuff. Maybe he had some interesting maps. So I went to, I went to the sale. And the maps were over in the back corner, and they, most of them weren't very good. They were framed. They were in bad shape. Some of them were rolled up. And one of the ones was rolled up. It looked just like um, it was on butcher paper. And I unrolled it. And I realized that it was an Aztec map. Um, it, it, was, it was, in fact, this map here, um, which is a map to cut to the chase that was prepared, and I'll, I'll just pass this around, Michael, people can pass it and take a look at it. Um, this is a map that's probably about five feet long and about two feet high. And I knew enough about early Mexican paper making to realize it was on Mulberry Park paper, which you make by taking Mulberry Park and basically beating it like tapa cloth and flattening it out which is the way that the Aztecs made paper, and it was a way that was in use up until maybe 1600. So anything on Mulberry Park paper had to be before that. And one could readily see that it was a, a, a cadastral map, that it was a map showing land plots. You could see there were little figures that seemed to represent the number of people on a land plot. There were other little figures that seemed to represent what was being grown there. Um, there was a church over in a the corner. There was a figure of the Viceroy of Mexico. I looked at that. Uh, you know, it was a Viceroy who was from the 1560s. Um, it looked like it was a map of part of the Valley of Mexico done in the 1560s, which is what, it, in, in fact, it turned out to be. And here it was, stuck in the corner of this sale. So I bought it for $800. And I brought it back and stuck it under my bed in my dorm room at Yale, which was a safer place than anywhere else in my dorm room at Yale, and um, thought about it. And I, then I took it and showed it to Michael Coe. Um, and Mike, who's an extremely enthusiastic person, literally started to jump up and down in the air. And he said, where did you get this thing? And I told him the story. And he said, well, this thing's just fantastic. You've got to offer it to Yale. Well, I knew all the Beinecke people quite well by this point. Uh, I knew Archie. I knew Donald. Um, I knew Ken, Ken Nessheim, who was the, the assistant librarian. Um, Fritz had retired. Louis Marx, was the, the, who was an English professor who had become the librarian. But I, I, I pretty much knew them all. And so I wrote up a description of what I thought it was. And I went over and gave it to them and said, I'd like to make a presentation to potentially have you buy this. And so they said, fine, come over and tell us about it. And so I, I took it and walked over, and I hadn't yet figured out what to ask for. I, this is one of the problems of being a rare book dealer that I've since mastered, but at that point, <laughs> at that point, I didn't quite have it yet. And so I got in there, and I gave my whole talk, and we looked at the thing, and they nodded, and they said, well, okay, how much? 
And I thought, okay, in, in those far off days, it cost $5,000 a year to go to Yale. So I thought, 5,000, it's gonna go up, six, six, five, six, six, $17,000. My next three years, I want the rest of my Yale tuition. And they said, fine. <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh shit. But it was fine. I walked out of there walking on air because I now knew what I'd do for the rest of my life. I had no question I could do this. I could make a living out of this. I just paid the rest of the Yale tuition. You know, what, what's to worry about? So that had happened, and I was very pleased with it. And at that point, Peter Decker called me up. And Peter said, um, you know, you keep talking about wanting to get in the rare book business. Um, I know this fellow who's just a guy who knew very well. I sold a lot of books to, and he's died. And he's left all of his, he had no heirs. His only heir is his first cousin once removed. And she very much wants to sell the books because she wants to sell the house, which is worth a lot more than the books. So Peter and I drove out to this estate, this huge estate in northern New Jersey, in Summit, New Jersey. And huge, vast house, packed with books, absolutely packed with books. So packed with books that you couldn't even tell how packed with books it was. <laughs> um, and the estate was, she had a contract to sell the house for, and this is 1975, for like a million dollars. And she wanted to sell the books for $40,000. And even I, at that point, could see that this was a good deal. And Peter was saying to me, this is a very good deal. You know, if I was still in the book business, I'd be doing this, but I'm 80 years old and I'm not going to do it. So I called up my parents and said, um, would you lend me $40,000? Um, and they agreed to lend me $40,000, which was gullible of them, I suppose, but um, it all worked out. And I bought all the books in the house which turned out to be 20 tons of books. Turned out it filled a tractor trailer. And I recruited my Yale roommates and, and other friends, and we went down there, and we packed and packed. We got to the main library room, and the main library room turned out to be double shell, which I had not realized at the time. So I was in the book business, um, but I was a sophomore, and I still wanted to graduate from Yale. Um, so I decided I had to do this in partnership with somebody. I had become very good friends with Fred White, Jr., who was in Texas, in College Station, Texas. And so I proposed to Fred that we become partners. And he had a going book business, going concern. He could run that, and I could be in the book business and continue my education at the same time. And so we did, and, and worked together very well for, for the next three years. Um, and while we worked on selling that. But that meant that as of April of 1975, I was officially a rare book dealer, and the first, first time I exhibited a book fair was the Plaza Book Fair of 1975. Um, and it also meant that I spent the summer of 1975 cataloging books in Texas. And that was a momentous moment. Because in July of 1975, John Jenkins succeeded in buying the stock of Edward Everstott & Sons. 
And the Eversots had been the greatest dealers in printed Americana, particularly Western Americana, but really all of Americana. And with some surprising areas, Ed Everstadt, the father who founded the firm, had actually started as a dealer in Latin Americana. So there's actually a tremendous amount of Latin Americana as well. And all of this stuff came in multiple tractor trailers to Texas and was installed in the vast Jenkins Company warehouse in the beginning of August of 1975. And because I'd become partners with Freddie, who was very good friends with John, I was there. And this was really a, a, a seminal moment um, because John, who was in many ways a brilliant bookseller, was also a person who had no patience whatsoever. And he also had made a huge investment on borrowed money and was really wanted to get redeem his recoup his fortunes. So the world was descending. Everybody in the American book world was coming to Austin, but we were there first. And the person doing the pricing was a wonderful guy, one of, a lifelong friend of mine named Michael Ginsburg, who had been recruited as one of the great experts in pricing things. And by this time, Mike had been, uh, by the time I got there, Mike had already been sitting at a table pricing books literally for 24 hours straight. So it was kind of you put a book in front of him and he somnolistically would say, uh, 125, uh, 375, uh, 550, uh, whatever, pull numbers out of a hat. And so it was an amazing opportunity to, to buy great stuff and um, an opportunity that I exploited to the fullest. Um, so the downside of this was that John Jenkins had other things to sell. Um, one of them was the Texas Declaration of Independence. Now, I might have thought, in, uh, if I had been less naive than I was, why did the man who was the premier dealer in Texana have a copy of the Texas Declaration of Independence, a very rare document, but he did not want to sell it himself. He wanted to sell it privately and quietly to another dealer. Later in my career, that would have raised a lot of issues. But at the time, it didn't. Um, Johnny showed me a Texas Declaration of Independence, and I thought, my god, this is a great opportunity. And I already knew, I, I had gotten to know some Texana collectors. One of them was a guy named Bill Clements, uh, who, whose library is now at SMU, um, who later became governor of Texas. And John said, I'll sell you this Texas Declaration of Independence for $15,000. But you can take it on approval. I got in my car, I drove up to Dallas, and I sold it to Bill Clements for $30,000. Another aha moment. Aren't we brilliant? And I thought I was brilliant on that score for quite some time until five or six years later when I was in Austin, I was having lunch with Tom Taylor, and Tom Taylor told me he was working on a little book called Text Fake. <laughs> and Tom Taylor had realized that a lot of important Texas broadsides were showing up, all of which ultimately seemed to come back to John Jenkins, that were fakes. And I got a terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. I barbecue suddenly didn't taste very good. And um, I said, well, I think I know another one, but um, let me go talk to the man first. By this point, 
Bill Clements was governor of Texas, and I kind of had visions of the Texas Rangers <laughs> clapping me in irons and whacking me in the basement of the state capitol. But he was very nice about it. Um, we worked out an arrangement where I gave him, I paid him back money and gave him credit for other things, and I took it back. <clears throat> and it now hangs on the wall of my office, um, where I can see it front and center. Um, but I didn't know about that until later. So at the time, um, everything seemed fine. Um, so I now had a wonderful period of my life. I was going to school. Um, I was running around. Uh, I had organized my life uh, so that when uh, my junior year, I had no classes on Wednesdays. And every Wednesday was a field trip day. I would go somewhere to look at books. I would go out to Chicago, I would go down to Washington, D.C., I would go up to New England, I would go scout for books on, on Wednesdays. Um, and I ultimately finished my history major my junior year, and that allowed me to be in a program Yale had called the Scholar of the House program. And so I spent my senior year working on one big, big paper, uh, which is a, a long book-length paper um, that some of you, I think, have read, called Winners of the Past which is a history of Americana book collecting and book selling from the 1830s and 40s up to about 1910, up to about the time of the wholesale. So uh, it, it, that was a, a useful piece of education as well as, um, as, as well as being exactly what I wanted to do. And that also allowed me to do a lot of research in American libraries, so I got to go hang out in nice places. I spent three weeks off and on working at John Carter Brown Library, which meant that I had lunch with John Alden and Tom Adams every day, which was a lot of fun. I spent a couple of weeks at the library company, which meant that Edwin Wolfe and I went and had lunch every day, and that was a lot of fun. And ultimately, Tom Adams and Eddie were the readers of my, my paper at the end, so I kind of had the fix in that you know, they were going to approve it and it was going to work out. So at that point I graduated and I decided, uh, I had to decide what I was going to do because I still had academical leanings. Um, and I resolved that by taking six months off in the book business and working for Archie Hanna. And I had, a, again, a wonderful educational job, which was to go through the open stacks of the Sterling Library and identify things that should be in Beinecke. And the things I pulled out of Sterling in that period are absolutely make my, made my skin crawl at the time. The most amazing things you can imagine that were still sitting in the open stacks. And, and sometimes, sadly, things that weren't. Um, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them. Uh, Clarence King did a wonderful book in an edition of 10 copies when he was running the California Geological Survey called Three Lakes. It's a big folio book and it has 10 mounted photographs by Timothy O'Sullivan of lakes in the High Sierra that he named after his three nieces. And there was a copy of this sitting in the Yale stacks, the copy that the king gave to O.C. Marsh and had the Yale call number of Folio C3. It had been checked out about six months earlier and come back safely. Another thing was a volume called... In, stylishly titled in the spine, Papellus Varius. And this was a bound collection of about 100 broadsides printed in Lima in the 18th century that had been folded up into a single thing. And if you went and looked in the Yale Carb catalog, 
that's all was in there. Papellus Varios. But 100 18th century Peruvian imprints in one volume. So that, that was a, a real a great opportunity to wallow in a lot of material. And at that point, I decided, though, that I was really cut out to be a rare book dealer. And I went on and became a rare book dealer and lived happily ever after. <laughs> um, I'm just going to close by making a, an observation about the difference between then and now. This is in the pre-digital age, and one could really only learn and obtain knowledge of material by being absorbed in it and soaking in it. And I had the great good fortune to have the ability to wallow in vast amounts of material and to be able to soak in a huge amount of knowledge through it. And in those days, the book business really was not at all a level playing field. It was a very high learning curve. But once you got up that curve, your advantages were enormous. Because, and that's still true to a degree because I think one of the things that's obscured in the digital age is the difference between knowledge and information. Information is now readily available to us all the time in every form. We think we can look it all up. And to a degree, we can look things up in ways that we never could before. But being able to look things up without the knowledge, and the knowledge that can only be obtained by literally wallowing in the material, is, I think, the difference between true deep book knowledge and simply access to information. And I was very, very fortunate and privileged to have gone through an education that allowed me to gain real book knowledge and that was the basis of my career. And from that point, I went forward, started the Roving Reese Company, and taught at Rare Book School. I think it, it, it wouldn't have, it, it certainly helped. It certainly helped. Yeah, certainly helped. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think that if, if I hadn't had the money, I knew that I would have had to bring a partner into it. I, I, I would have known that, I, I knew people I could have gone to who would have, like, put up the money. You know, I, my closest uh, friend and colleague in the book trade is a guy named Donald Heald. And uh, Don really started off as a, as a runner in London, 
and had no money. I mean, it was really like sleeping on people's sofas and just moving stuff from one place to another. And he told me this great story of bringing something into Quaritch, and he was trying to get them to give him 500 pounds for it. And they said, we're not going to give you 500 pounds, you know, we'll give you 100 pounds. And he said, no, I paid 400 pounds for it. And the guy looked at him and said, Donald, you don't have 400 pounds. You couldn't have paid 400 pounds for it. <laughs> so there is certainly an advantage to, uh, to that in a variety of ways. Oh, come on, one more smart question. What did you I rented a storage space. You, there weren't as many storage spaces in those days as there are, but New Haven, which was a, a town that really kind of was in the lowest point of its trajectory in the mid-1970s, had plenty of empty warehouse space. It was extremely cheap. It wasn't, wasn't hard to find a place to put them. And, and eventually a lot of them moved to Texas. You scared them all, Michael. Yeah. I learn something new every day. Uh, absolutely every day I, I learn something new. And, you know, I, I went through an experience last year that really reiterated, I mean, th that's always been true. But I've never done that much with books on the high Arctic. And I had a chance to buy a very nice collection of Arctic books. And it was, that was really a wonderful, fresh revelation. Because there were a bunch of books I knew, and a bunch of books I kind of knew, and then a whole bunch of books I didn't know anything about. And so I found myself digging in bibliographies I'd never really looked at that much. I found myself you know, reading secondary uh, scholarship about the stuff. Um, and... I had the actual raw materials in front of me, and by the time I was done, I really felt I knew something about uh, Arctic books. So it's you know, the, the being in the process of constant learning is, is what keeps me, keeps me rolling. That and a lot of alcohol. <laughs> now we want to thank you for giving so ably the 600th lecture, and we have a gift for you for a it's a Tiffany colored box. Rare Bookstore does not shop at Tiffany. But it's similar as a Jefferson mug. Thank you. So I'm, I'm supposed to drink like chilled bourbon out of this, I yes, suppose. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. For breakfast. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Thank you. This evening's reception is in honor of the Charlottesville antiquarian bookseller Mary Gillum, who is proprietor of Franklin Gillum Rare Books, who has been elected president of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America and is about to wear the ermine, take up the mantle, and seize the scepter of unbridled power. <laughs> And we, sh we should congratulate her this very moment.
you will look very good in ermine, I have to say. I think it goes for you. <laughs> we can work on that. Founded in 1983 by her late husband, the eponymous Franklin Gillum, Mary's firm specializes, by no small coincidence, in Americana. In law books published before 1870, books about food and wine, printed ephemera, books about books and manuscripts. Mary's inventory reflects both her deep and sensitive knowledge of printing history and the aesthetic properties of books as artifacts. Her learning and taste are evident in the firm's meticulously selected stock and carefully researched descriptions, as well as the unique stories and the mysteries that emerge when closely studying the history of books as physical objects. Again and again, she manifests a deep connection with her material. One reason why this may well be so is because Mary wasn't always a bookseller. Rather, she was a librarian. A librarian with a real MLS. A librarian working at the University of Virginia. A librarian with a degree in art history and another one in history itself. An example of Mary's erudition and deft touch may be seen in her listing for a 1758 copy of John Mercer's exact abridgment of all the public arts of Assembly of, Virgi of Assembly of Virginia, calling attention to the question of why this work was published in Glasgow instead of in Virginia, as one might well expect by William Hunter, the official printer in Williamsburg at the time. Addressing this thorny question, Mary notes, Hunter's output was extremely small, a mere 46 titles, mostly known in one copy only, have survived. His shop was primarily engaged in binding and the sale of blank books. This may be explained by the fact that from 1753 to his death in 1761, William Hunter was, with Benjamin Franklin, postmaster for the colonies as well as being postmaster of Williamsburg and the publisher of the Virginia Gazette, and therefore, says Mary, probably had little time to devote to his business. The binding of the present volume, she notes, is crude, and is almost certainly American and was almost in all likelihood bound by Hunter's own shop. The binding of the three copies that we have handled are all the same, as is the one copy in the Alderman Library of the University of Virginia that has an original binding. The other three lack their covers. Mary, it is our privilege to honor you alongside Bill Reese. And we have a small gift for you that we would like you to open in front of the admiring throng. Please come forward. Mary Jones. No, no, no. Please come on stage right here. Come higher. Stay on stage. 
scripture says, come higher. No, it's not Urban. Face your adoring throng and see what the President Gillum has. Interesting paper. Yes. Gentlemen, please join Bill and Mary and their friends and fellow booksellers for a collation in our premises at Alderman Library. Thank you very much. <laughs>